The Tom Sumner Program. Old fashioned radio for a new generation. Oh, it's always a pleasure to be with you, Tom. You know that. Yay, Tom! I love it in Flint! You're very astute, Tom. Easy question. I'll debate Andy Dillon on your show. Well, uh, that's a very good question. Uh, Hello, darling. This is Elvira, Mistress of the Dark, with Tom Sumner. I'm all right, Tom. How are you? Hey, lucky team. <laughs> Ciao, Tom. How are you today? That's a good question. <laughs> Hi, this is actor, comedian Jonah Pody, and you're listening to the Tom Snyder, uh, Tom Smothers. Uh, I mean, I'm sorry. What's his name? Uh, Sumner. The Tom Sumner Program. Good morning, Tom. How are you doing? Hey, at least I got the Tom part right. The Tom Sumner Program. Old-fashioned radio for a new generation. Hi, this is Gretchen Whitmer, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. It's time now for Armchair Politics. Join host Tom Sumner for this weekly reality check on current events in local, state and national politics and the real issues that really matter. You too can be part of Armchair Politics. Find us on Facebook. We let the dogs off their leash. Stay tuned, because it's on now. Hey, good morning, everybody, and welcome to this week's edition of Armchair Politics, uh, our weekly roundtable on the Tom Sumner program. Joining me for today's edition of Armchair Politics, our panel of political pundits includes our roundtable regulars on the left, Flint's premier political pundit, Paul Rosicki. Good morning, Paul. Good morning. Good to be here. And on the right, longtime Genesee County Republican Henry Hatter. Good morning to you, Henry. Good morning, Tom. And joining us for today's edition of uh, Armchair Politics, political operative Bobby Clayton Walton. Good morning, Bobby. Welcome. Good morning. Hi, guys. Good morning, Bobby. Okay. We always start out with a few quotes, and uh, the the first one is uh, the one where I ask you, how would you finish this quote? And uh, it goes like this. The urge to save humanity is almost always what? How would you finish this quote? Hmm. In doubt. Uh, Wrapped up in (laughs) self-interest. Frustrating. Paul, I think you were pretty close. The uh, original quote was, The urge to save humanity is almost always a false front for the urge to rule. Uh, Okay. okay, That's That's like being in doubt. (laughs) <laughs> you, you know who right. you know who said that? Um, oh. Churchill. No, it was. No. Uh, and the timing is about right. H. L. Mencken. Oh, oh, oh yeah, yeah. He's good. He's Mer- good. American writer from 1880 to 1956. Yeah. Um, yeah, he tended to be rather cynical, didn't he? A little bit. Oh, yeah, he was very much so. He was. <laughs> Um, here's, here's an interesting quote that got my attention. 
Nothing approaching an order that foolish was ever given, and I can't imagine anyone that worked at the White House after me that would have simply shrugged their shoulders and allowed that order to go forward without dying in the ditch trying to stop it. Hi. John Bolton. No, it was a different John. It was John Kelly who served as Trump's chief of staff for 17 months from 2017 to 2019. In the days since the FBI seized classified and top secret documents from Donald Trump's Mar-a-Lago resort, the former president and his allies have claimed that Trump had a standing order to declassify documents he took from the Oval Office (laughs) to the White House residence. But 18 former top Trump administration officials told CNN they never heard any such order issued during their time working for Trump and that they believe the claim to be patently false. How does this compare to Nixon's claim that if the president does it, it's not illegal? It's just about the same league. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) That's one of those thoughts that's still polluting the air around the presidency. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, I can't believe anybody would believe that. It's going to take a long time to clear that air, Bobby. That's true. Yeah, we need an air purifier. (laughs) (laughs) That's what governments uh, that held to divine rights would have stated. That's true. That's true. I, you know, I can't remember America. when it was, but I remember reading an article about a problem they were having at the White House. And this goes back a few years, uh, multiple administrations. Um, they had a rat infestation. <laughs> and and I remember every time I read stories about, you know, the efforts that, you know, they were going in to get the rats out, um, I, I just couldn't help snickering a little bit because of the metaphor. <laughs> right. It does present a picture. Yeah, about the, the divine right, Henry. Um, how about Donald Trump seeing those documents are mine? That's sort of a reflection of that, isn't it? Well, uh, yeah, you have to think about that um, because not Americans. We don't believe in divine rights. We don't believe in honoring and bowing and all of that stuff. Uh, so, what, what's really? And a lot has been written about this, so I don't have to. Ex- I was going to say, what's really interesting about those documents is the motivation. I mean, was this was this to write memoirs, or was it something he wanted to keep hidden, or or were there some other reasons why they were all taken down some to some basement in Mar-a-Lago. I mean, we don't know at this point, but the motivation would be interesting to find out, and I, I suspect we will at some point. We I, probably will. I I did a little thinking about that this morning, and I thought, you know, the one thing that I think is uh, a thread running through this whole thing is the primary purpose of our government, of any government, is to keep the country safe, to keep the people of the country safe. That's the reason that we gather together and form government. And um, these documents are uh, can present a danger to us if their contents are revealed to our enemies or to other uh, foul people. And so that very focus by the FBI or the, the, uh, the government to recover the documents is a safety factor. And we need to focus on that as being so important. Well, you know, a, a lot depends on 
uh, how people look at the event. First of all, to invade its home. Uh, this is not something that's uh, new. Uh, documents have been taken out of the White House for many, many, by many, many presidents for a length of time. Do we know that? Well, I yeah. think the one I, I, I think the one comparison that is um, maybe one of the more interesting arguments is the idea that that Hillary Clinton fell under investigation for personal use of of email access yeah. that was um, actually belonged to the government. And yet she never, she was never raided or served uh, warrants or subpoenas in that same way, um, whereas Donald Trump takes a bunch of things. And I'm not sure, yeah. as I look at this, um, I'm not sure that Donald Trump really had any intention. I think his notion was all this stuff happened while I was here, it's mine. So I'm taking it yeah, well. Me. And no, he'd figure out later what he would do with it. Maybe a book, maybe, you know, for his library, you know, I, I don't know. But anytime you're serving as an official leader on the country, documents created by your organization belong to the public. They don't belong to you yep. anymore. You can yeah, but I, go, I just can't see Donald system. Trump accepting that and, and understanding that. But that's how it is. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. It was taken in a unguarded basement somewhere but, in Mar-a-Lago. Apparently, but, we're but, you know, access. But uh, to support Donald Trump in this, uh, Mealy, uh, there were things that were done to Donald Trump that he hated. Uh, he just could not stand, and he was always trying to uh, get back his space that he lost through this these confrontations with people who intended to do him an injustice. Yeah, he always had that. Well, Henry, don't you remember the video at the, the, uh, the correspondence dinner when Obama was there? Obama teased Trump about various things, and a lot of folks argue that that's when he decided to run for president, that because he just, he, everybody else was laughing at, at these jokes that Obama was making, except Trump. He was taking great offense to those, and, and a lot of folks suggest that was where he decided to uh, to take on Obama, the Obama administration, in a sense, and run for president. Uh, but the amazing thing about uh, Donald Trump, he grabbed the imagination of people who had never been involved in a political process. That's what's really interesting. We are divided up between young people and older people, and the young people are changing the course of history. They want nothing to do with people who uh, were in power 10 years ago, or 20 years ago. They're standing <laughs> I, out on their own. I had to snicker a little bit. The guest that was on the show last hour, um, here, let me uh, find my notes so I get it right. Um, Dean Schroeder, uh, the co-author of, um, he, he kept saying in the interview um, that, he didn't really want to get, he didn't want to talk about politics. He didn't want to get involved in politics. And yet the book he's promoting is Practical Innovation in Government, How Frontline <laughs> yeah. Leaders Are Transforming Public <laughs> Sector Organizations. Well, you know, it was, um, you know, we, we 
wrangled the the concept that that politicians are um you know very often business people who have run for and and uh, gotten elected to office which he thinks is a huge mistake <laughs> that the two things are very different and it yeah um, that that it isn't wise to basically hire businessmen to take up elected office or, or run government and government agencies because the bottom lines are different and, and they're two different That was things. kind of my, my topic of, my, of last month's East Village magazine is we need good politicians, people who really know how to, how to make politics work in the best sense of the word. Yeah, and you know, that, that, that is the truth that runs through the whole argument also. I was invited back, and I probably mentioned this before on another show, I was invited back to my old university in Texas to speak at the luncheon at the homecoming of the meeting of the government department, and I was their speaker. And i that was my topic. And this was, oh my gosh, my, it must have been 16 or 17 years ago. And at that time, I was very concerned about the privatization of government. There was so much that was being turned over to private sector uh, interests to run, which were government functions like prisons. And there I am at the home of the Texas state prison industry making this speech. <laughs> Yeah. And I got I got chastised and attacked by my audience, many of whom were public administrators who believe in saving a buck in order to, you know, make the train run on time. And, and I was saying the same thing. The bottom line is different. You can't evaluate how a profit-making industry is delivering the public goods the same as you would government because they're not held accountable. There's just no accountability there. Well, it might be some of your critics were on work release. <laughs> well, I, I didn't. There were a few I didn't recognize. <laughs> uh, you know, by the way, in the, in the same vein, I'm always struck when, when somebody claims, "Oh, I'm, a, I'm not a politician. I'm a businessman." And the fact is, being a businessman is, is not a guarantee of anything. I mean, there are good business people. There are bad ones. There are mediocre ones. Well, the premise, the premise has doing. always been, Paul, and and you know this as well as anybody that that. The argument is that government should be run like a business in right. terms of solid accounting efficient. and efficient yeah. fiscal yeah. policy. Um, but as you point out, and, and as my guest in the last hour pointed out, there's nothing carved in stone that businessmen actually have those qualities. Right, right. <laughs> you know, but the but the assumption bankrupt all the time. The assumption and is basically that businessmen are known to be protected by their rules because they have a fence up around the business. The government cannot enter. There's the, the protocol for that. People cannot enter, and uh, unless you used to be president. <laughs> but when you're running for politics, you're not protected necessarily like that. You don't have that fence. Um, well, well hey, we've we, got we support business. Henry, we support business. Our government is very supportive of business. Yes. We we've, do so uh, much to advance business overseas. We do a lot to provide for tax rebates and all kinds of support. We provide small business loans. I mean, we support well, business. We have a well, very business-oriented society. I, I need to support some business right now and take a <laughs> short break. We'll be... We'll be back with more armchair politics after we let our broadcast partners squeeze in a few words, and we have Everybody's some as well. Everybody's doing.
it on brand new dance now. Hi, this is Mark Farner, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. I'm Julie Lopez with Crime Stoppers. Have you ever wondered what to do if you have information about a crime or the whereabouts of a felony fugitive and you want the police to know but you need to remain anonymous? Well, here's what you can do. You can go to p3tips.com or download the mobile app. You can go to Crime Stoppers of Flint and Genesee County's Facebook page and click on the Leave an Anonymous Tip tab, or you can call 1-800-422-JAIL. All methods are anonymous, and if your help leads to a felony arrest, you may be eligible for a cash reward. Remember, your voice matters. Our fellow Americans. Right now, the COVID-19 vaccines are available to millions of Americans. And soon, they will be available to everyone. The science is clear. These vaccines will protect you and those you love from this dangerous and deadly disease. They could save your life. So we urge you to get vaccinated when it's available to you. That's the first step to ending the pandemic and moving our country forward. It's up to you. you ever feel like you need an attitude adjustment? Are you wishing there was a magic pill or a new app for your mobile device? Why don't you try live local music? Music can make you dance, bring back fond memories, inspire you to be more creative whether you attend a child's school concert or recital, go to a local symphony concert, visit local bars and restaurants that feature dance music, sing-along piano, or jazz and blues. Music could be just what you're looking for. Supporting live local music is more than a way to support your local artists and economy. It's a great way to improve your own quality of life. Support live local music. This message is brought to you from the Tom Say, objection. Hi, Mom. What's up? Dana, what are you doing? Oh, you know, just, um, Attorney General stuff. Listen, I have a legal question. What is it, Mom? I just got a call from the water company. Apparently, your father has not been paying the bill. I guess they're going to turn the water off because we owe more than $1,000 now. Can you believe it? Actually, I can't. So listen, we just have to send them $200 in Edible Arrangements gift cards, and that will keep the water on. Now, here's the legal question. What is the website for Edible Arrangements? Mom, it's an imposter scam. Imposter scam? Is that .com or .edu? No, the call was a scam. Scammers will pretend to be a government agency or a utility company or someone else you might do business with. A big red flag is if they tell you that you can pay them using gift cards. So when in doubt, ask for the information to be sent to you in writing. And never give a caller or someone you don't know your personal information or your money. If you do suspect an imposter scam, report it to my office at mi.gov slash agcomplaints. Okay, all right. And Dana, where do I file a complaint that my daughter hasn't visited in over a month? Does your office have a website for that? Okay, Mom, I'm hanging up now. I'm Michigan Attorney General Dana Nessel. 
Visit mi.gov slash agcomplaints for your connection to consumer protection. Hi, this is Deb Cherry, Genesee County Treasurer, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Radio Show. Hey, welcome back, everybody. We continue with uh, today's edition of Armchair Politics on the Tom Sumner Program, featuring our roundtable regulars, Paul Rosicki and Henry Adder, joined by Bobby Clayton Walton. Um, during the last segment, we uh, were talking about a couple of quotes, and, and there was one more I wanted to squeeze in before we move on to some other things. And it goes like this. Look, he played a critical role on January 6th if he had succumbed to the pressure that Donald Trump was putting on him we would have had a much worse constitutional crisis. Hmm. Somebody's t- talking uh, about Pence, I assume, but who's... Uh, hmm. no, I, I, I remember hearing that, but I don't remember. Is it this, Jamie? Yeah, it was, Henry. That's exactly who it was. It ah. was uh, ah. Representative Liz Cheney. The vice chair of the January 6th House Select Committee told ABC on Friday that the panel still wants to hear directly from former Vice President Mike Pence. Should the former VP testify, and do you think he will? I think he might. I think what he should. Well, uh, and, uh, and the way he's I been talking, know. I think he just might show up. Well, it's... Uh, we got to look at what what was his role in his capacity uh, when he took the action steps that he did. Well, he had uh, a constitutional from, obligation yeah, yeah. to simply chair the function. He didn't have a vote or a say in anything that happened. That you know, his constitutional duty was to just stand up there and yeah, read things. In, yeah, but he was the vice president to a president who was telling him that he should do yeah. something else. Yeah, Trump was leaning at him heavy. I mean, he was just dumping yeah, all but, over him. But he used his own course of action and, and escape. Look at him as a victim of what was going on and potentially um, a very painful victim um, and a witness. So I, in the sense that he's a witness to what occurred, I think he... Um, would be wise to testify because he may have a point of view or some experience that he could share. But that turns him on uh, other people, that he has no intent to make enemies of. He, How do you know that? He wasn't engaged. Well, that's what you would do. That's what I would do. That's what's logical. Well, I mean, it was the Trump forces that tried to hang him. <laughs> I mean, I think yeah, I know. There's, some, there's no love loss there I, uh, when you get down to it, I suspect. Why uh, would you go want to get into a you dog know, we heard when you don't have claws? There were, there because, were people, he, because he swore to uphold the Constitution. Yes, he did. There were people who um, suggested that harm should befall Rick Snyder. And I think it was Cher who suggested he should be hung or... Yeah, I, think, I, I recall that quote. That's right. That's put right. to sleep in some, in some way. <laughs> but, well, you know, some of, the, some of our more outspoken celebrities are, um, are radical in what they say, and I don't think we should pay attention to them. But many people. I agree, but the the point I was going to try to make by comparison was, Cher didn't build a gallows. 
Yeah, no, so, I mean, and again, there wasn't a crowd chasing Snyder at the time. I mean, it's one thing to say something dopey on a in a tweet or something, and just to sound off. But when you've got a crowd well, that's that's what I that's hall. what I'm saying. Okay. And look how close it came. If if Pence had fallen into the hands of members of that crowd, yeah, what might maybe have we happened? We don't know for sure, right? But what might have happened to him, and how would that event be viewed differently if the vice president had been injured or worse, killed that yeah. day? Yeah, yeah. Well, he but certainly was a witness. Yeah, well, well, we can't answer those, but uh, I'm glad it turned yeah, out but, the way it did. But, but maybe he can. In both Michigan and the, the United States. Those were critical events that would have changed the course of history. And that, that seemed to be the intent of the crowd. I mean, they clearly were uh, out for blood, at least, at least some of the images you see of some of those. Well, going what I'm saying is be, because, because no harm befell Pence or Nancy Pelosi or any other government officials, um, you know, those comments are being chalked up to the same kinds of things that, you know, we hear from time to time. You know, people maybe going a little bit over the top with some of the things that they call out for, like Cher saying we should kill Rick Snyder. Yeah, if she had a weapon in her hand when she said it, then that would have a lot of a different meaning. And if she had well, brought a crowd with her and stormed his offices, that would have made a difference. But you inspire other people to take those ugly actions. When it happens that, every day, a, Henry. I know, but uh, I can't change it. But I, it's something for us to discuss. We, we yep, Susan Sarandon called for burning down the system and starting over again, but I don't think she even had a book of matches in her hand when she said it. <laughs> yeah, but those are ugly yeah. things. The police shouldn't say that, and the elected officials shouldn't say it, and the president of corporations shouldn't say it, or union officials. It's something that threatens other people to act negatively. Well, and that's what we have in this country today. Everybody's after everybody's throat. There's no civility, and we've talked about that a lot. And you know, I, maybe, I maybe the these, most ominous thing about the six was that somebody went to the trouble to build ahead of time to build a gallows to bring it into the Capitol grounds. I mean, that yeah. didn't happen in, in, in five minutes. Somebody had to construct that. I assume days earlier, if not longer than that. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I can see them threatening to hang Spiro Agnew. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> He's dead now, so leave him. I know, he had done a lot more than Pence did. <laughs> well, let's see. Um, yeah, let's move on. The city council had the right to remove first ward councilman Eric Mays as its president when it took the action four months ago. A Genesee Circuit Court judge has ruled. Judge Celeste Bell granted the council's motion for summary disposition of a lawsuit filed by Mays in a four-page order on Friday. Are you surprised that Eric Mays's, uh quote, due process uh, argument didn't carry more weight? Well, I, you know, this, this was probably, the, and I like Eric Mays, but this was probably the best decision that could have been made by that judge at the time because 
governments and institutions are made up of people with certain rights, not an individual, but a people. They carry out the process in an orderly way. <laughs> she just brought it back to order where it should be. Yeah. But but I, th- I thought I might have a case. Isn't there a provision in the charter that you have to wait, I think it was two weeks or something of that nature, before you remove somebody, and that apparently did not happen. So there was a procedural issue. You know, yeah, probably he should have been removed. But whether or not they followed the right procedures, uh, at least yeah. when I initially heard of the, the action when it took place, I uh, I had a little question about whether or not they, they waited the appropriate amount of time. I think yeah. you're right. But, you know, I read the article in the journal that Ron Fonger, and he's pretty good at covering these issues. Mm-hmm. He pointed out in one part of that article that the judge said that she found based on the argument that Eric made. And it may be that he did not emphasize that particular element. If he talked about other parts of the process that he was criticizing, but not the, the, the waiting period, if that wasn't even part of his argument, she had no basis on which to find it that It was part of that issue, and it seemed like he might have had a point there for a while. It was part yeah, of the question he raised in the immediate aftermath, and I'm, if it wasn't brought up in the court case, I'm surprised. But, yeah, I know, don't know. We'd have to we'd have to read the transcript. I have no idea, but there was that statement in the article that she found based upon the argument that his side made. You know, there's a protocol to how you conduct business in the public for the public, and there's a chairman of the organization that guides the proceedings. And uh, if she says you're out of order. You've got to take another course of action because that's a protocol. Otherwise, you could appear obstructive. And this is a meeting of the public in the public, guys. You've got to follow the protocol. And well, so if, let's... if Eric didn't follow the protocol, uh, <laughs> she had to call for other means of uh, disposal of that infraction. But she could only judge based on the evidence that was presented to her. Yeah, yeah. If he didn't raise that argument, he, he may have, yeah, yeah. may have missed a chance to yeah to, to win some. Points. But then, then that's what that body of people are supposed to talk about. How do we dispose of this issue and do it legally? <laughs> well, so there's another is. another body in the city of Flint that's uh, discussing procedural issues. Uh, Danielle Green, the former Flint Board of Education president that allegedly assaulted another board member, will resign from her seat as a condition of a plea agreement with the city of Flint. Uh, Green, who must submit her resignation effective Friday, appeared in Genesee District Court Judge Herman Marable's courtroom on Monday morning. Was this expected? Yes. Did did you expect part of the plea deal? I I remember we've talked about this uh, yeah. this event in the various court proceedings and the fact that uh, you know there was a switch in her uh, representation and they asked for more time because they were close to uh, coming up with a, um, a resolution of some sort. Um, did you expect that it would include her stepping down from the? I, I was somewhat surprised when I, I, I heard that. I, I mean, did. I did, because you can't do that in public. 
and uh, not on a public board. You cannot do that. There's a protocol. You are unfit for the board when you act out that way. Well, it's not just a protocol, but I think the fact that the Board of Education or the school board in Flint has been under so much pressure and so much criticism for such a long time, including the superintendent, that this sort of behavior just lends itself to further criticism and the kind of animosity that was expressed in the attack, it would be hard to keep a Board of Education going forward with any positive direction unless that was resolved. And her resignation certainly takes a step in that direction. Well, now watch it. You're agreeing with me. But, <laughs> but, yeah, but let's, even, let's build on that. Resolve the attack, that animosity is still there. <laughs> The, 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 the Board of Education is sounding more and more like the City Council all the time, so this, well, let's, this may be a step in, that, in correcting that. Uh, let's see, yeah, let's it see may what be. some and I of think, the other... I think the new chair, Joyce Ellis McNeil, is that her name? Um, I think she's, I've been reading some of the things that she's putting forth, and I think she's trying to do um, a, a good thing in the positive direction and keeping the public informed about the things that the board is voting to do and the things that they're trying to bring to the, to the well, schools. Well, let's let there's another piece here that that speaks to best intentions as infighting within Flint Community Schools Board of Education ensues the board under went yet another shuffle of positions at a board meeting on August 17th board members voted 4 to 3 to uh, strip Joyce Ellis McNeil of her title as the board's president, Chris Del Maroney, <laughs> Alan Gilbert, Danielle Green, and uh, Carol McIntosh voted yes, while Linda Boos, Ellis McNeil, and Laura McIntyre voted no. McIntosh, uh, who was the vice president, now assumes the role of the board's president. For the board's vice president, Del Maroney takes on the position. Uh, following a 7-0 to zero vote in favor for him over Boos, Green becomes the board's treasurer after a 4-2 to two vote, um, although I think that's been made moot by her resigning from the board. When all was said and done with the votes on ro role changes, McIntosh noted that, quote, I'd like to congratulate everybody on their new moved positions Hopefully, we can move forward to get some things done. Has this recent round of musical chairs positioned the board to move forward more effectively? Yes. I doubt it. No. You're being pretty optimistic there, Henry. It has an opportunity. It knows what has been done wrong. It has an opportunity to rectify those. People are waiting for those. The citizens of, Mich of Flint are waiting for new directions here. And uh, we have that opportunity now. And we must work toward encouraging people to make that change real. Do you, th do you think the Flint community schools are, are going to be able to rebound from the current? I mean, I call, I, I call it a collapse. I mean, we're down at below 3,000 students. Uh, we used to have what forty-eight or forty-four thousand at one point. Yes. I mean the numbers just keep falling year yeah. after year. I don't you think it's any chance to, to turn that around. I don't. I, I don't. You, you guys, we've lost too many resources, too many good teachers. Uh, we've lost our way here, and it is difficult to get taxpayers to support a failing school system. 
You have to get your graduation rates up. You have to get student performances up. And people will not support it unless only the people around this table will support that. But the public won't support that. Well, I think because we're looking at a mini-layered issue, because the State Board of Education certainly has something to say, as does the state legislature, about failing school districts, because they've closed some of them down. I think the issue of the budget, which comes from the state, of course, except for the property, which leads me to the next point, which is this, the, the Mott Foundation that is supposed to be offering some right. kind of a deal on building new schools or rehabbing or closing down. There's some sort of a, of a capital investment issue there. What I would be interested to know is how the school board is working with the Mott Foundation. What are the, um, the issues there and how are they being resolved? And what kind of an agreement is being entered into? And are we turning the school system effectively over to a private interest? Yeah, uh, that, that's been the hot-button issue of the school board. Yeah, to, to uh, it's a public school. You're right. There has to be a lot of things changed because to get the public dollars from Lansing. And you can't turn it over to a private entity unless the legislature, as you say, is involved. Well, I'm just very concerned about it because, like I said before, I'm very concerned about privatizing any government service. And because it removes the public from uh, oversight and accountability. And don't you think that that the cultural academy that they just you know, recently put together around the cultural center is an, is really, in a sense, a privatization? I mean, of of the yes. uh, the Flint schools. I mean, yes. Well, it's another one of the charter schools, and and the state of Michigan, I don't believe, does a very good job of overseeing and administering the whole charter school system, because there again, the whole public accountability is very weak. Um, they are, they tend to hire private management firms who are not subject to open meetings, open uh, finance disclosure, or anything like that, and the only thing that is public is the actual academic. The charter schools are, by definition, public schools. You can't change that unless the legislature changes that. Yeah, but the functioning of them has been bypassed yep. to the point where they are no longer public schools. That's probably, no. The, the, the boards still, are much more private. They're still receiving, private the, receiving the public dollars. Anytime that you're receiving money from a, a, um, a bottomless pit, then you have to... You have to walk that track. I mean, you have to do what they say. You missed my point, Henry. They turned the management of the schools over to a private management firm that is not considered a government entity and is not subject to open meetings or public disclosure. But there's a process for doing that. They, they organized the process so it would be legal, legally um, functional. The legislature... Uh, authorized that for an independent body to follow the rule and the will of the state of Michigan to uh, conduct education in as public schools. But, but even and though I, I know, I know what you mean run quite differently than public schools. I mean, the, the boards are, as, uh, as we said, you know, but the boards are much more private. And, uh, and and less open to they're run by exposure. they're run by colleges or other institutions. Sometimes, with the, 
Uh, well, actually, the one that oversees the cultural center is Grand Valley, and they have oversight of a whole bunch of charter schools. Yeah. Um, yeah. Many of the colleges have oversight. It's a very weak system, and the oversight that is practiced is also very weak. Grand Valley is probably need to have another meeting to discuss it. Yeah, probably Grand Method is uh, Grand Valley is considered one of the best colleges in Michigan. Well, so they have the reputation and the finance and the public backing that they can assume that responsibility. Let's, let's now, whether they do, I, I, my last point. I, they do no more than the law requires. Well, uh, and they get paid less. The only thing you, you got to talk about the these people get paid less but doing the same job as a, as a person in a public institution, typical. You're making my point. Huh? But, but uh, still, education is occurring uh, within the law because the law has framed it. And, mm -hmm. uh, Bad law. Yeah. yeah. Well, let's move okay. on to some of the other things. Okay. A, jury has, a jury has convicted Barry Croft Jr. and Adam Fox of conspiring to kidnap Governor Gretchen Whitmer, the verdict. Tuesday followed nearly two weeks of testimony in U.S. District Court in Grand Rapids. Are you surprised by this verdict? Mm. Not, not from well, what I've heard. I, thought I was surprised by the, uh, the, the earlier hung uh, jury verdict to some degree, but from, from what I've heard, I wasn't surprised by that, I don't think. Uh, why weren't you surprised? I'm, I'm, I'm just curious. I mean, it, it just sounded like these folks were pretty serious about about trying to kidnap the governor. I mean, they, they tried to blame the FBI in some ways, but uh, it seemed like kind of a stretch for for a defense argument. This was my no, was my reaction. The most recent uh, argument that I've heard is that why the question was asked why didn't Governor Whitmer call other jurisdictions, uh, governmental institutions of other states, and let them know that they could possibly undergo the same thing that she did, but she didn't. Then called the Ohio governor and other governors that she was under threat of being killed. And, uh, and that was discussed on the radio in WTR yesterday, and it was rather interesting. I, I, I don't know why that would have happened, and I don't know whether they got the responses that they had hoped for from that, that question. But you guys might know why she didn't call others. To well, I don't. Know. I don't know how Governor Whitmer um, would have had any information about a a threat assessment or a risk against other governors. To, well, she didn't to share. Have to. It, it's, it's, it's the danger that she was put in. I, th I thought being on state. CNN would have pretty much covered it. Uh, yeah. she, <laughs> no, this, she got a lot this, of national press from, from those threats and that yeah, investigation. That was the, it, it, she got a lot of national press. Hey, but we someone got, came out and said, well, why didn't she call the other governors? Why didn't she publish that and said, be on the alert? There are guys out there that will um, uh, try to take over government or uh, tr kill the governor or whatever she thought was going to happen to her. But they wanted to know why it wasn't that spread around the country. 
We're going to take a short break. We'll be back with more after we let our broadcast partners squeeze a few words in or do whatever they do when we go to break. Hello there, citizens. Darkwing Duck here. And every time I'm in Flint fighting crime, I always stop by the Tom Sumner program. Don't forget, stay dangerous. Darkwing Duck out. East Village Magazine is the monthly neighborhood magazine read all over Flint. With support from grants, donations, and advertisers, East Village Magazine's talented local writers give you an in-depth look at local news, issues, and people that make Flint, Flint. Copies of East Village Magazine are available at many of your favorite shops and restaurants around Flint or online at eastvillagemagazine.org. East Village Magazine, community-focused and community-supported. Imagine a journey down a picturesque river. Imagine your Flint River, 142 miles of recreation, natural beauty, and precious resources. The Flint River is a vital resource that is available for all to use and enjoy. The river and its ecosystem provide unlimited recreational opportunities and natural beauty while supporting wildlife in a vibrant landscape. We all have a responsibility to protect and preserve this precious resource. Learn more at FlintRiver.org or call the Flint River Watershed Coalition at 810-767-6490. The Tom Sumner Program plays host to the best political roundtable on radio every Wednesday from 10 a.m. to noon. Armchair Politics features great commentary and analysis about the headlines from local, state, and national politics with an alumni of world-class pundits, plus quotes, tweets, and those weird and wacky stories we call the X-Files. If it's Wednesday, catch Armchair Politics on the Tom Sumner Program. Cloth or disposable? Paint or wallpaper? Yellow or green? Babies come with lots of decisions. Crib or bassinet? Rocker or glider? So when it comes to protection against diseases, go with the safest, most effective choice. Vaccination. To protect your child against 14 serious childhood diseases like measles, meningitis, and whooping cough. That's why nearly all parents choose it. Stroller or carriage, basketball, or soccer. So get all the recommended vaccinations for your baby by age two. For more reasons to vaccinate, talk to your child's doctor. Go to cdc.gov vaccines or call 800-CDC-INFO. Justin or Justine. Immunizations help give you the power to protect your baby. A message from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Why are we stopping? We're going to be late for the show. Mom, Dad, we got to get gas. Not here, you're not. This place is charging an arm and a leg. Look, these days, price swings of 30 or 40 cents per gallon aren't unusual. But when a gas station charges a price way above the price at similar stations, that could be gas gouging. Michigan gas stations sell the correct quality and quantity of gas most of the time. But when a station does try to illegally take advantage of drivers, my office is here to stop them. Stop Attorney Generaling! We got a concert to get to! I hope she doesn't sit next to us. 
Narc. This is Attorney General Dana Nessel. If you have information about potential gas gouging, call my office or go online at michigan.gov slash AG. Put those away. We're at a gas station. This is U.S. Senator Gary Peters, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. And welcome back, everybody. We continue uh, today's edition of Armchair Politics on the Tom Sumner Program. Somebody's phone is uh, getting a little uh, line noise. Wonky. Yeah, yeah I think it might be mine. <laughs> mine. Anyway, um, yeah, let's let's. Uh, Let's, let's move on. Michigan's abortion ban will continue to not be enforceable by county prosecutors for the foreseeable future after an Oakland County judge issued a preliminary injunction Friday. Uh, Circuit Court Judge Jacob Cunningham sided with Governor Gretchen Whitmer ruling that the 1931 law is contrary to notions of due process, equal protection, and bodily autonomy. He said the state successfully demonstrated a concerning and recognizable constitutional crisis as it relates to the medical profession and the women and persons capable of bearing children. Can right to choose advocates and supporters stall enforcement of the 1931 ban and get a referendum on the ballot to keep abortion legal in Michigan? Many people think that a, a referendum like that would pass. And do you? I think the key thing is getting it on the ballot. And now there's that squabble about whether or not there's the some parts of the petition had the appropriate amount of spaces between some of the words. That I don't know if it's going to derail it or not, but I guess there's an odd kind of squabble going on about whether or not the petition itself was apparently printed correctly. That's. Uh, but, uh, yeah, I think you're right. I think if it gets on the, on the ballot, I think it's got a good chance of passing. This is my take on it. So, I think it has a good chance of passing, too. But I, but I am surprised by the squabble about the, 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 yeah. the, apparently the lack of spaces between some of the words on some of the printed documents as an attempt to derail the process. And, and I, I think if it gets on the ballot, it settles the arguments once and for all. Can they Whether keep it? Can they keep it injuncted until they're able to do that? I'm not sure that's a real word, but I think you know what I mean. Hmm. Well, that um, on the court. The, and the governor has gone to the Supreme Court also, so there's a possibility that they will enter into it. Don't you think they would probably wait to, wait till the, the ballot? I mean, we're only what less than three months away from the ballot. I I think would they the wait for that? I think the Michigan Supreme Court would want to take some temporary stand, like like a an injunction or, or something like it, um, uh, until the matter could be settled by the voters. <laughs> it would be nice to have some clarity. I, I could imagine a medical provider having a great quandary about, you know, what's legal today compared to tomorrow or yesterday. I mean, uh, but these these court rulings going back and forth periodically, yeah. it's got to be yeah. a very great dilemma for any medical provider to decide what to do in those situations. And, and I, I think courts are intimidated by the public's uh, outcry against this kind of discussion. We're, we're so strongly divided on one side or the other. The courts are not the courts that you used to be 
in the past generation. There and isn't that and isn't that because this central federal government has dropped the ball regarding the protection of individual rights? Because once they turn this sort of thing over to the states, you wind up in a situation where the so-called majority rules and the minority loses. And I think that right now we have minority rules and majorities are losing. And it's not right for human rights to be left up to the individual states. I think that should be a central federal protection under our Constitution. Well, there is uh, against mob rule, rule of the strong majority. I think that there are some protections there. But, uh, but not for the, not, I don't, but I don't find it in this question. case, Henry. This is a good question. I, I don't, I'm not debating you on this. It was a good statement. But I just wanted to point out that some actions have been taken to do exactly what you have, and people are still debating it. So maybe we need to go back and let the people settle it or have a court case that determines the outcome. Well, when you over, when you overturn Roe, you throw it back to the states. You're going to have 50 different yeah. states doing 50 different things, uh, and maybe more than that when you get down to the local governments, uh, which we've done a little bit in Michigan with the prosecutors, or at least for a while. But right, yeah, that's and, guaranteed to all Americans. Same and way. project that, yeah, project that forward for other rights, not just uh, yeah. the right yeah. to not not just the right to medical reproductive health, but mm-hmm. also the right to vote, also the right to assemble. I mean, there's so many rights that we have had interpreted as coming through our Constitution, to have them taken and put back into the hands of the states is not right. It's wrong. Well, Republican gubernatorial candidate Tudor Dixon has named Shane Hernandez, a former Republican housemaker, as her choice for lieutenant governor. Dixon had until 5 p.m. Friday to inform the Michigan Republican Party of her pick. Hernandez served two terms in the Michigan House and at one point uh, chaired the uh, House Appropriations Committee prior to running for Congress in the 10th House District. He lost his 2020 Republican primary election to now U.S. Representative Lisa McLean of Bruce Township. Dixon, as part of her announcement, said she was confident that delegates at the August 27th uh, Republican Party convention will embrace Shane and united we will defeat Gretchen Whitmer in November. Uh, that convention, of course, coming up this week. Was, um, was this a good pick? Yes, it was her pick. Any person who is elected the head of a state has a right to choose his own mate or her own mate. Just like Gretchen Whitmer. She's got three women there that chairs all of them. Now, is that wrong? No, that's what she wanted. That's what the... That's what the outcome was. You know, this she reference somebody is... somebody with legislative experience. I mean, she's, she's, got, she's yeah. got no legislative or elective experience at but all. That, so she's got, she adds that at least to the ticket. Yeah. But it looks like there's going to be some controversy even a little bit yes. at the Republican convention yes. this weekend. Yeah, there is going the to be. Senate governorship. Well, a couple now, people that said they were, they were going to challenge it and, and uh, put themselves up uh, were you know, former, uh, formerly on the ballot in the primary for governor, um, but they've stepped down. 
Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, I see Soldano did, but I thought that minister was at Rem- Rem- yeah. Re- Re- Rebrand. Now, he's, he's going for it still. I thought, I, I thought he stepped down as well. I could be wrong okay, about man, that, I, Paul, maybe, but... I, I, Yesterday, he looked like he was still running, but he may have changed his mind since then. Now, Soldano has walked, uh, stepped away from it. Yeah, I, I saw that. Uh, and, rightfully, saw that. and rightfully, he is. He's going to let things settle down and let they, the... Uh, the situation at hand handled itself. He's not going to drive it. Now we mentioned is, is that, issue, that Henry is the issue that uh, that Hernandez is not uh, Trumpy enough to to satisfy so the pro-Trump Republicans. No, I I, I don't think so. I, but I think uh, people want some the new people who are coming in, and the parties composed of nearly fifty percent of new people who have never been politically engaged before. And at least Genesee County was. Uh, <clears throat> and they want to change things. They want things to move in their own direction. And so you're looking at a party that's, uh, and Democrats are doing the same thing. You know, they, uh, uh, if they're not, <laughs> they don't want to face the irony and the anger of these young people who are running for the. Well, Democrats had their convention last weekend, and I mentioned the Republicans have theirs coming up this weekend. Um, But I did want to mention, did anybody happen to see this picture that was taken at the uh, Democratic uh, convention last weekend? It had uh, Gretchen Whitmer in the middle with Dan Nessel on her left and Jocelyn Benson on the right, and they were were posing like the poster for Charlie's Angels. Right. (laughs) Yeah, it was really a great picture. I noticed Dana Nessel was the only one that appeared to be holding a gun. And and I'm guessing that she was a little more enthusiastic than the others, because given her sense of humor, I, I think it might have been her idea. Oh, yeah. <laughs> now, now, you know what drives this madness in our country, not only in states, but in the federal government and all around? Guns. Guns. You know, guns that uh, they make you the superhero. They make you the bully of the woods. They make you triumphant yeah. and everybody wants one and everybody's got one if you don't have one uh people are wondering why they don't have one well we can't have society running that way guys we gotta have some order and structure i don't have one i don't want one here, <laughs> i don't yeah. have one yeah. either i shouldn't be saying this you know i'm <laughs> most likely to be killed <laughs> i fit in that group that kills more often than others <laughs> That's well, right, Henry. The school board members are getting more and more slack than they ever used to. So. Yeah. <laughs> used to be a nice, quiet job, but not anymore. Yeah. Yeah. I once dated one of the top gun experts in the in the United States. He, this was when I lived in Tennessee, and I told him if somebody was coming into my apartment and had intended to do me harm, I wouldn't want a little handgun. I would want a shotgun because. I'd want to blast them away. I wouldn't want to wing them or drop the gun. Yeah. You still have the lust for blood. Well, if he's coming after you, I guess you would. That's how nature's put that reaction into you. You must protect yourself. 
Well, we got to take a short break here for top of the hour ID, and then we'll uh, we'll come back with the second half of today's edition of Armchair Politics with our roundtable regulars Paul Rosicki and Henry Hatter, joined by political operative Bobby Clayton Walton, and we got lots more to talk about. In fact, coming up right after the uh, top of the hour, as we get into the second half of Armchair Politics. We're going to talk about a political convention that was held in a parking lot. It, and no, we're not oh, jumping yeah. ahead to the X-Files. It's going to sound a little bit like it. But we'll be back with more right after this. Cool. Hi, I'm Alexander Zanjic. Don't touch that dial. You're listening to Tom Sumner. Tom Sumner. 